0: we got a show for you. I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. I'm Strangely, this is the podcast, and the friends will be along in a few moments. It's... Been a busy week for me, mostly school, but also I am really into the thick of commuting via running, which it's been an especially inspiring week for running. I don't know if you've heard about this guy Kipchoge. Uh, he broke the two-hour barrier on the marathon. For a long time, people have said that two hours is the time barrier to run a marathon. And this guy did it in less than two. There's, you know, there's some things about it doesn't qualify for a world record because he had pacers. But it's it's all complicated runner, like, technicality stuff. Someone ran 26.2 miles in less than two hours. I don't care how much cheating you're doing. You still did that. And that's incredible. There. I've commented on something in the current cultural zeitgeist. Now let us speak of it no more. Strangely recommends in 200 words or less Including these 11
0: Who imposed this rule? Wait, does this a side count? Fiddlesticks!
1: Matthias Buchinger, The Greatest German Living by Ricky J. Whose peregrinations in search of the little man of Nuremberg are here and revealed. Verbose official title aside, this is a delightful and deeply personal book by an incomparable historian of the performing arts, made all the more diverting through the incorporation of sundry autobiographical anecdotes of Jay's search for materials related to Buchinger. Born in June 1674, without hands, feet, or legs, this irrepressible personage nevertheless gained great renown as a magician, model-maker, marksman, and most impressively, micrographist. This last being the inscription of characters so small as to be nine visible to the unaided eye. Only 74 words left. I am often struck during my personal readings of history how colorful the past actually was. In our cacophonous era of cell phones and CGI, it is easy to imagine the past as a simpler and more sedate time. The very idea of people from many walks of life flocking to bear witness to the talents of a 29 inch tall, philcomelic overachiever puts the lie to such nonsense with thundering aplomb. This is my chat with Ava Bowe, who was probably one of my favorite guests so far. She's an incredible stage performer and magician. And we talked about magic and performance and fringe. And what she even opened up a little bit about what it's like to be a lady magician. So I really hope you folks enjoy this chat. I've always wanted there to be more lady magicians in the world. And I think part of the problem is that there aren't role models. So if you're looking for a role model to be a magician, here's Ava Bow. We're sitting in, uh, this was the dressing room of sweet menus at the mm-hmm. grass market.
2: Uh, it's very glamorous.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, this carpet is, uh, yeah something else Yeah, I'll have to post a photo of that on Instagram now for the uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a really riveting podcast yeah. that you were talking about carpet uh, you just finished uh, you did a full run didn't you of yeah. 30 shows
2: it was 18 actually because oh. I did 6 a week I had one day off not through choice but just because the venue right. didn't run on Saturdays which was a big day to miss out on yeah but, especially
1: on Free Fringe
2: yeah but it was a good venue and a good location so mm-hmm. I just thought I'm just going to sort of lose that day and try and make that up on Fridays and Sundays, which I think I did. I
1: wanna, yeah, and especially towards the end of the run, having a Saturday off probably is almost kind of nice. Yes. Yeah. Like, it
2: was eh. fun. I didn't want to take them off, but actually I had a good time on Saturday nights.
1: So obviously like most of my listeners can't see your show because it's yeah. done. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you're doing more shows. So the, you are a... Magician, yes, or as you say in your show, a magician, a
2: magish, yeah. Is that
1: actually a thing back, kids say, or is that it...
2: no? It came from I went to Blackpool Magic Convention, mm-hmm. it's the only time I've been to a magic convention, and it was basically about 95% white men just kind of there. There were a few sort of like wives and girlfriends, but not there were barely any female magicians at all. Mm-hmm. And I went with my friend Laura, and I remember. We just were surprised by how seriously everyone took each other, and took themselves, and how it was just so sort of farcical with how seriously everyone took themselves. So we were kind of taking the mic, going, "Oh look, all the magicians, um, and all the magicians are here and sort of taking the piss a little bit." Yeah. And it became a thing because a guy turned around at the bar and said, "Did you just say magish? Please stop." With the most disdained <laughs> look on his face. So immediately we decided it had to become a thing. So every cabaret performance I was doing in every show, I just started using that as a joke at the start. Magish. To kind of defiantly make it a thing.
1: It's not the kind of thing that I really like spending a lot of time like commenting on with my guests, but a lot of the guests I have on tend to be people who are exemplary in their fields, not just because they're good at what they do, but because yes. of who they are I mean something that I was talking about with Griffin and Jones uh, when they recommended that I come see you is Mm -hmm. that just by walking on stage and not selling like the fishnets and cleavage like assistant look you're doing something different yeah and to hear that you're going to this like magic is a very serious profession and just kind of being like, magish. Yeah. It just makes me so happy, because it's, you know, it's the... I want more of that.
2: Yeah, me too.
1: You know, um, you know uh, was it a year or two ago, that film Black Panther came out and had a black director, black cast, black writers, you know, the majority of the folks, the creative talent behind it were yeah. people of color. And so many people were like, this movie is mind-blowingly amazing. And so it's like, Yes! If you let the voices that aren't normally heard from say literally anything, it'll probably be interesting. Yeah,
2: that's right, because I think there aren't any strong female solo performers. I think that's actually more rare than female magicians, because I think that's what the industry is lacking as a whole, because I think you get lots of female comedians, and I think that is awesome, but I think also quite a lot of them are self-depreciating. Which is good because that's how comedy often works. Com- mm-hmm. Comedians are quite often self-depreciating, but I think we need more sort of solo female performers that are getting out there and just being a bit sort of more sort of confident and arrogant on stage in a fun way. Yes. Yeah. A really confident. This is who I am, and deal with that kind of way. I yeah. think. because I I like burlesque as well, and I think that's a really powerful art form. But I think also because you're not on stage speaking. Mm-hmm. You don't have as much of a voice. So I think we need more of powerful female performers that have a really strong voice.
1: Yeah, it's it's something that that mm-hmm. like I did a set at Lock and Cabaret, and afterwards Nathan said to me because I did a thing I don't normally do there. They needed a fi- they they needed a last minute burlesque, so I did my burlesque. Oh, amazing! Uh, I do a magic burlesque thing.
0: Oh
1: wow! Um, and. Nathan was like, "I had no idea what you were going to do, but you can hold a room so I knew yeah. it would be fine and the fact that it's just a given that I can hold a room is something that I've worked really hard on, but it's it's something that I think for for uh femme presenting performer is much harder because you you know it's like you get accused of being shrill or or mm. whatever like that kind of thing, yeah, and it's like the, this double sort of balancing act yeah. and it, and yet when I do see it done well it's it's shocking there's a, yeah. a circle show performer from Vancouver, British Columbia called Sharon famous Sharon from Canada and she always makes a big deal about how she's famous
2: yeah. in Canada
1: and she like wears a red tracksuit and then get, pulls people out of the crowd and juggles fire on them you know it's a very standard circle show yeah. but she's a, a woman doing it
0: mm.
1: and it, she's amazing She's really funny, and she's yeah. really good, and, and just her mere existence, like, puts the lie to the fact that, like, it's yeah it should be that. But, I've, yeah, I, I loved your show, and Thanks. you, would you consider yourself a bizarrest, or is that more of, like...
2: A little bit, it's what I want to move more into. I think a couple of years ago, when I did my first show up here, I didn't really know what character I wanted to have. Mm-hmm. And I just got out here and did a show. And I think the fact that I used Edgar Allan Poe as a concept, or his stories as a concept for the show, meant that it automatically became a bit dark and creepy. I think from there I realised that actually that's the kind of route I wanted to go down. I also did the needle through arm trick in this show. But I think I wanted to experiment with more of that. Mm -hmm. I like the idea that the character is kind of... She's fun and mischievous... And she doesn't quite have a moral compass, so she wants to sort of relate to people. Um, and she loves the audience, but she doesn't quite know where the line is. So she does things that they're not going to enjoy, but she can't help but doing. And she can't help but take it a bit too far, because she doesn't quite know what is right and what is wrong. If you get, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Which, th- that kind of character on stage, I was talking about the balancing act of, like, holding a room and you know, all that. But that kind of character on stage is an entirely different kind of balancing act because if you push it too far, you become something that stops being dangerous fun yeah. and starts just feeling dangerous.
2: Yeah. Or unlikable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think almost I quite like the idea... I think someone said something really nice in a review this year that basically said that I made feel people feel very very comfortable when they are on stage. They felt very safe and very comfortable standing up there in front of the rest of the crowd, but then at the same time, the stuff I was performing was becoming more unnerving and macabre throughout. Mm-hmm. So the audience felt unnerved, but they also knew that they were okay at the same time.
1: Yeah, well, you start with the cut and restored string on the balloon, which yeah. is a lovely combination. Right, uh, And then by the end, yeah, you're sticking needles through your arm in it. Yeah, But... but but that taking an audience on that journey is something that it's it's always lovely to watch because any good show brings an audience to a place that don't expect yeah and uh, yours is a good show obviously <laughs> like obviously uh but th- th- that that thing th- but still the needle is quite a jump mm. in sort of like the level of macabre yeah that you're bringing
2: yeah I quite like the fact that I think they still trust me though afterwards, because mm-hmm. after that I go straight into the story where I get everyone to listen to it by closing their eyes, and I didn't expect- I tried that once in a preview show thinking that no one would really do it, and mm-hmm. realized that the entire audience had their eyes closed, and most nights I walk through them and realize that almost every person does have their eyes closed, which I didn't expect, but I think it's nice that they trust me enough to do that, so yeah.
1: It's a, it's a nice barometer sort of to see how yeah. you're done for the night yeah like in the same way that the bucket can be and you know sort of those interactions after the show but it, the, the moment where you see if you've
2: connected yeah it's a classic thing isn't it of wanting everyone wants to feel like they're safe but could be spooked at the same time It's like, that's why you watch horror films isn't it mm-hmm. because you're safe and you're not in the horror film, but you can also be scared by watching it. It's the classic thing,
1: I think. I think that's part of any kind of live performance is getting a chance to be close to something. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a lot a lot of ink has been spilled on the idea that specifically circus. Is, I'm fam- most familiar with this, but it's like our dreams are real in the circus. People can fly, and yeah. disappear, and swallow swords, or whatever. You know, it's like yeah. things that should only exist in a dream are happening. Yeah. right in front of your face and a magic show can often be that way particularly when it's the storytelling
2: mm. kind of show that you do yeah that's why I don't like it when this is one of my pet hates is when I get sort of magicians who aren't really performing magicians who are just kind of magicians that like it as a hobby mm-hmm. which is great yeah. Many people people doing that um, but they come to my show not to be entertained but to sit in the front row and watch my hands the entire time which they've already missed the entire point of the show mm-hmm. because there are, I, think, I like to think there are impressive pieces of magic in it, um, which will fool people. And then there are occasional little bits, which is just like I make that kind of rat appear from behind someone's shoulder. Yeah, I reckon 10% of the audience are going to spot that before it happens right. because it's hard to hide, but it's just more of a joke than a piece of magic. But I think they're just looking out for stuff like that. I'm thinking, oh, I've, I've got a, I've spotted that. But that's it, the entire. You've missed the point of it because it's, it's storytelling. I know it's not. It's a rhino dressed up to look like one. I couldn't find one. Okay, it's really difficult. I thought fake rats would be so easy to find, but it turns <laughs> out they're really not. <laughs> but I did like that. Joke. I was when when I managed to turn a rhino into a rat. I think that was one of my proudest moments at the fringe. So.
1: And uh, I'm sorry, I sort of interrupted you, but the the idea of it's about the storytelling. I mean, Mm. that's why I love Griffin and Jones. Yeah. They do that whole, you know, the the bit where they have the audience member pick a card and throw it in an envelope and they stick a pencil on a string through the envelope and then the signed card is on it. And it's like there's one part in that whole thing and is standing there on stage (laughs) doing nothing. It's a 15 minute long magic piece. Yeah. In which one of the two men on stage does absolutely nothing. Yeah. And and yet I've seen it probably 30, 40 times, and I love it.
2: And I always enjoy it because yeah. I've seen it so many times as well. But I never, I never, I, yeah, I always enjoy it. I love the bit where the whole audience is building and building up to it, going oh, and it's about to happen, and the confetti gets thrown into the air, and it's just so over the top. Yeah. For a simple card trick, but they've made it amazing.
1: Oh, they're so lovely. That that thing though of having the the professional magicians come sit on the front row, mm-hmm. arms crossed, watching your hands the whole time. Yeah. I uh, you know I, I do the, I do this séance show. It's the same thing. It's about storytelling and it's about invoking a mood and a character. And, yeah. And, and at the end of the show, when the spirit bell starts ringing and people can talk to the ghost of this man I've been telling stories about for an yeah. hour. They're in it, and they're there, and they're present. And it's, it doesn't even really matter
2: yeah.
1: how the bell is ringing.
2: Yeah,
1: you know, I had I had one guy talk to me after the show, and he's like, "Oh, it's I know you're doing this and this, but I still love the show." Yeah. I'm like, exactly. That's exactly that's, what you want. Yeah, that's what it's for. I, my, my friend uh, Tim Mannix has worked the Magic Castle several times, mm. and yet he still gets all these these you know. The, the hobby magicians come and sat in the front row at the shows so with their arms crossed and they just don't react to anything and occasionally they'll just sort of nod to each other like oh, uh uh-huh, uh uh
2: yeah <laughs> you are like why are you here okay.
1: and you I, I would imagine you get a lot of the like not only that but like the just I don't know I, I just feel like from moment 1 your show is not about that
2: no i think the magic company Companies, the storytelling almost
1: mm-hmm. yeah and did, did you get into it for the storytelling as opposed to the I'm the smartest cat in the room <laughs>
2: <laughs> no so I didn't I, I think I always wanted to perform when I was younger I always wanted to of. I did a lot of dance and singing and stuff like that and I just wanted to be on stage performing and then I accidentally picked up my magic as a hobby I think I'd be lying if I said that I didn't get into that partly because I was rare because there weren't female magicians and I liked being a bit of the old, an oddball, a bit of an odd one out. Um, but then, yeah, that just kind of... I ended up starting to do it professionally and realised that it was great. So that's how I got into that. I can't remember why you asked what I was talking about that, what question you asked me. Was it? But, no I mean
1: that's, yeah. that's fine you know I, I, I'm just I am really keen to hear about you know how you got into it because you know I I want there to be more Lady Magician's mm. and, and
2: yeah there are barely any role models I don't think yeah. I think that's what I did I got into it knowing there weren't any and just wanting to be a bit different mm-hmm. so I think that's how I ended up in it but then I think lots of girls don't even consider picking up magic because there's n- there aren't women doing it to kind of go, oh, she was really cool. Oh, I want to do that too. Right. I think for a long time, it's been the classic image of men in suits. with mm-hmm. Yeah, doves and stuff. It is changing now, though. The image is changing quite a lot.
1: It also, like, the image is changing away from men in suits, but it's also kind of... I feel like magic has gotten uncomfortably close to, like, shitty lad pickup culture.
2: Yeah, definitely. And just, yeah, men on the street with their iPhones kind of filming themselves doing tricks to women. Yeah. So flirting with them. If I, get
1: this, if I get your card right, you'll give me your phone numbers. Yeah, remember, is
2: stuff like that. But I think also, we were taught, I was talking to another um, friend who was a magician the other day, mm-hmm. and he was basically complaining that women were getting into it, or some women were getting into it um, because it was rare. But then they were also just kind of getting their cleavage out, sort of being quite sexual with it and giving it a bad name and always giving it the wrong kind of image because it was giving less opportunities for women who wanted to do magic and wanted to perform it as an art or sort of perform it in a different way. But then I also can't. I I get what he's saying, but I also don't think it matters if there's a girl doing some simple card tricks or some card flourishes yeah. with her, sort of like a cleavage out in a really kind of short dress and fishnets. Because I don't think that's actually gonna. I think hats off to her. She can do yeah. that, and I can do something different. I don't think it's going to affect the way I'm seen or what I'm doing because I think I'm doing something so different that it wouldn't actually make a difference whether other people are doing that
1: yeah I mean like the I can't remember their names the naked magicians those yeah. two guys no one I mean I'm sure there are some people like well this, this, our art form is being yes. disrespectful disrespect but
2: not yeah. many people complained. About no. It. no
1: no people think they're brilliant
2: yeah and actually the magic they do is, is good <laughs> yeah. I didn't ex- I expected the magic to be awful when I went to see it but actually it was a good show yeah and it wasn't just about the get, getting naked and I think if we start complaining about women getting into magic and getting their cleavage out then you have to look at all the male illusionists who are just stripping off all duff on stage with two women either side of them
0: yeah.
2: doing sort of big scale illusions, that's everywhere as well. But yeah. I wouldn't say that affects the work that other male magicians are getting, you keep their clothes on.
1: Uh, it, it, it doesn't. I, I, I it's something that I, I see a lot of in any performing arts field because no matter how big the field is, it's still an infinitesimally small fraction of humanity. Yeah. That we're all, you know, I, I, I play accordion and it's like the amount of people in the world who play accordion <laughs> yeah. is so small. Yeah. And yet, like, sometimes I talk to other accordion players and they're like, too many people play accordion these days. <laughs> like, it's just, I can't you know, Like, how do you get gigs? And it's like, it's like too many people play accordion? Every single time I do a run of shows or a show, yeah. like, somebody comes up to me and they're like, I've, I've never seen anyone play accordion before. Yeah. And it's, like, that sort of, like, so many people in these, like, performing art fields just kind of go, go up their own ass being, like, oh, there's just, you know, there's too many or there's too much or this person yeah. has ruined it for all of us. And it's, like, like, even at Fringe, you know, people will be, like, oh, it's just, this has peaked and thing and now nothing happens or whatever. And it's like, like there were, for a couple of years, there was some guy doing like the sassy accordion cabaret show and people were like, oh, strangely, you're in trouble. And now he's (laughs) not there and I'm still here and I'm having a good time still. So like he has affected me, not at all.
2: I doubt the accordion world is going to become saturated anytime soon. No. (laughs) I doubt the magic world is going to get saturated either
1: no because, because like for every you know shit self working card trick hmm. that anybody can learn on youtube there are like there is someone out there like you or i who takes the time to actually learn something maybe a little bit knacky,
2: yeah
1: but 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 then you're you're telling it's the stories you tell with it yeah there's a magician I know in uh, Fresno who was mentoring another magician, and the other magician had zero stage persona, like just zero <laughs> charisma. He'd like like doing amazing things. Like if I, if you or I could do the things he was doing,
2: yeah,
1: like people would literally <laughs> think you are actually magic, you know? Yeah. Um, and the guy who was mentoring him was like, gave him a Carl Fulves book of self-working uh, handkerchief tricks. I was like, you need to learn these. And then you need to do them over and over and over again every night when you go out to the bar and actually <laughs> learn how to talk to humans.
2: Yeah.
1: Because, <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, it's just like... And the, things will always come mm. back around again. And, you know, I...
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, tigers will probably be a big thing in magic shows like about five more years and we'll have tigers. Yeah, again, so
2: tigers it's again, yeah. I think people, because people say... It annoys me when people say that I'm getting more work I'm a woman but I don't think that's the case I think if I'm getting more corporate work it's because I can talk to people Mm -hmm. and actually make an impact when I'm speaking to them as opposed to just because I look because of the way I look yeah
1: so yeah I mean from where I was sitting like that disappeared so quickly in your show because it was a show yeah like I I I think whenever somebody complains about, like, yeah, getting more bookings because someone's a woman or the fake geek girl or any of that kind of nonsense, you know, they're coming at it from this place of, like, shitty privilege and feeling challenged. Mm. But it's like, if someone's a fraud, everyone else will know. They won't keep getting work. Yeah. They might get booked once,
2: Mm.
1: but they're not going to get booked again. Yeah. I, I did a lock-in cabaret a few years back and Griffin and Jones had booked this burlesque performer and, you know, she looked amazing. Yeah. She's one of those people who, like, was born with all the right bits. <laughs> and then her act just wasn't that yeah. excited. The crowd wasn't into it. Yeah. And it was a packed house that were, they were going mental for everything. And it's like, yeah. she, I don't think she's been back. No. And it's, you know, it's like, if it was just about how you look, like, the world would be f- would be full of only... You know, it would that. Be it
2: even more unfair <laughs> than it is.
1: Yeah, I mean, there there wouldn't <laughs> the human race would not still have ugly people if yeah. looks were everything.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. You know, because we, we personality goes so far.
2: Yeah. And
1: it's so important in performing.
2: Yeah.
1: And that thing you said about it, it's not just what's happening on stage; it's how you are to the people you're interacting with off stage. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Exactly. <sighs> I think people are just so quick to compare themselves to other people and go that I'm not succeeding in this because I don't have this or I'm not succeeding because of this or I wish I had this But actually you've got the cards you're dealt with just work with them you have to take what you have and do exactly what you want to do and write the show and perform the show that you want to regardless of what other people want you to do or what other people are doing Because otherwise, you're you're just going to spend your entire time overthinking and comparing yourselves to others, and not succeeding because you're putting barriers there. Mm -hmm. So that's what, yeah, that does really frustrate me.
0: That
1: that human reaction of othering people, Mm -hmm. in my experience anyway, it just doesn't seem to hold up to extended contact. And like watching a show is extended contact.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Like the performer comes out, and you will make a judgment an assertion but it, it's the performer is performing and doing a thing and they're, they're you know you, you start to open up to it yeah and it's, it's sort of like it re, it's easier to relax into that than it is to tighten up and pull away yeah. unless the performer is actively like um pushing the audience away yeah because you know sometimes you'll see a shit stand up comic who just completely is misreading the room and you know, yeah. it's awful <laughs> yeah um but the, you know, that thing, that I, I think that's one of the things that performing arts is so beautiful for, is just presenting something that on the street people would consider other or different or whatever, mm-hmm. and then by the time they've spent half hour, an hour with that person, they're a person. Yeah. Because, you know, being on stage allows you a chance to explain yourself. <laughs> yeah. For lack of a better expression you talked about there being a lack of role models yeah in your field do you have are are there some role models like are there have you found people maybe even since you've started performing where you've seen people who have been doing it for longer and you're like oh my god
2: yeah I like I think I take a lot of inspiration just from performers in general now Mm -hmm. I love I want to sort of like start writing shows with more and more sort of like meaning or like take home messages I really like Griffin and Jones's show this year because it had that take home message at the end which they've never normally (coughs) done or explored I like that but yeah I think so in terms of female magicians Laura London is very good she does she's actually got really good slot of hand and Mm -hmm. yeah that's impressive to watch I've always liked Ben Hart his work I don't know if you've seen him he was on Britain's Got Talent this year but I don't think obviously you've got two minute slots to do, right. but if you watch his entire show, he's got really impressive storytelling, and he just kind of takes the audience away to a different place. And um, his shows normally come full circle to mm-hmm. that moment of, ah, oh, that's really impressive. So I really like his stuff, and that was I saw his shows of quite a few years ago now, and that's what I think. I think I was toying with the idea of doing stage magic for the first time, and that's where I think. Because I didn't want to just do trick after trick after trick in a show. Because mm-hmm. I don't think the audience gets anything out of that. After what if you do one trick that's impressive? If you do another, a little bit cooler. But if you do a third one, if there's no sort of connecting story or no sort of point to it, what is the point in that mm-hmm. e- seconds of half an hour? But yeah. So I think watching his stuff, I realised you could have sort of a theme and you could do storytelling magic. And, and I really liked that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I take a lot of inspiration just from kind of watching theatre in general mm-hmm. and watching sort of... I love... Did you see Paul Curry show this year?
0: No, the but comedian? I
1: have seen Paul Curry yeah. many times.
2: I just love... Yeah, I just love stuff like that. If you could ever take his show and put magic in it... Mm-hmm. That is what I would do. But I don't have the character for that. Right. And I just I think that his work is amazing.
0: That that
1: that thing though about looking at other fields. Mm. You know, I was kind of talking earlier about how some people kind of get up their own butt about their everybody plays accordion. How am I gonna stand out? Mm. And and then they start focusing on impressing the other accordion players or the other magicians or whatever. And and it, you know, the the related thing of that is that, like, they go to all the magic shows. Like, when I come to Fringe, because I make a séance, I, I make a séance. I've never watched anyone else's séance show. Yeah, I'm I'm mates with them. Like, you know, Griffin and Jones will talk shop with me, and the, they'll tell me about like, oh, we did this, and it's mental what people believe. Yeah. You know, uh, but but at the same time, you know, I'm not going to their show and going, oh, oh, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and I don't watch a lot of magic shows. Yeah. I'm going to like clown shows and 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 whatnot. Same thing yeah. for cabarets. I do cabaret, so I don't go to a lot of cabaret because you know I go to little shadow puppet theater things, yeah. things that are very different from what I'm creating. Yeah, because I'm going to bring something out of that into the stompy accordion cabaret world or the quiet seance world.
2: Yeah,
1: that didn't come from there originally. Yeah, and yeah, d- like. <laughs> It's interesting that you mentioned Paul because I can actually see a little bit of that kind of like energy in your show. Oh. Like you're you're focused and you have your props and everything, but the way the props come out, you're like, I have down <laughs> <Yeah>. here this. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. know, like because that stage persona of just being like. Ah, uh, yes.
0: Well, um, oh, this is exciting. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Ooh. <laughs> oh, I like the line that I did every single show, which was, I've never done this trick before, but I think you're such a lovely audience. <laughs> like, I think tonight could be the night. Like, every <laughs> night. And I did sort of, I counted, I know you shouldn't count, it's such a, a tratty thing to count the amount of performances that you did, I think, but I did this mm-hmm. year. And with the all the cabros as well, I did 30 in total. Mm-hmm. So I know that I did that probably... 30 times it's like I've never tried this before but I think I might do it
1: right it's a yeah the, the, the Griffin and Jones have that thing where it's like a trick we've never done before unless you've been to lock cabaret before in which case it's the same one but if you haven't we've never <laughs> done it before <laughs> but but you know that that line of spontaneity because it, the audience is different yeah so it, in a certain sense I guess it is a different trick it yeah. is the first time for yeah. that audience. It's such a such a fleeting, sort of, like, liminal yeah. thing.
2: I know I couldn't keep, you couldn't keep that going for years, but I think for one Fringe Festival, even mm-hmm. if someone does see you twice, they should be able to appreciate the kind of joke in that. So, yeah, I don't think it matters.
1: You know, talking about role models and things to look for and stuff like that, do you have any recommendations of other performers... In any field, uh, or artists, so they don't necessarily have to be fellow fringe artists. It could be someone like you said. Said you saw um, Ben Hart yeah. on uh, TV. It be, he's been on TV, but like, I mean, books, films, anything like that. I, I, just, I love giving recommendations to my.
2: Yeah, I've seen. I read a lot. Mm-hmm. Authors I like for that. Yeah, thing. that's yeah. great. So, Neil Gaiman, I love Mm -hmm. how creative his stuff is. He famously wrote Coraline, but he does a lot of really amazing short stories as well. Mm -hmm. So, I love his stuff, and I love his take on... He's really focused, he's done a lot of work on trying to get kids reading Mm -hmm. in schools, because I think it's really important. I was thinking about doing... so this is a bit of a tangent but I'm thinking about that's doing right. a children's show next year mm-hmm. I was thinking about why that's important and my friend was saying you won't make any money off a children's show especially if you do it on the free fringe because parents just want to sort of turn up and have their kids entertained but I don't think I wouldn't really be doing it for the money anyway and I think there's like technology is so incredible and kids have so much access to it now that they're not getting the chance to, they don't Get given the time to sort of win out screams so they don't have to imagine anymore, and they don't have to believe in the impossible because it's just right in front of them, it's just their norm in the form of technology. So, I think stories became more and more important. So, I'd like to do sort of like a kid's show about sort of storytelling and stuff. I loved Spiderwick Chronicles when I was younger, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that kind of, so that's, and I always believed that maybe, maybe they were real. I always thought that maybe I would see a fairy in the garden kind of thing. And I think kids need more of that. So I'd like to do a storytelling show like that. And I also like Philip Pullman. I love his work. Um, he's just doing the new trilogy at the moment. Have yeah. you read Northern Lights?
1: I haven't, I haven't read The Book of Dust yet. But no, I, me neither. But uh, Northern Lights and uh, Subtle Knife and Amber Spyglass. I've read all three of those yeah. probably five or six times. Same. Yeah, I love they're so good. Yeah. The way he takes you from like whimsical British sort of style, like children's fantasy adventure, like C.S. Lewis kind of a feel. Yeah. To oops, the devil is a good guy. We killed God. Yeah. Nothing you care about is going to have come to pass. You know, it's just like that journey. Like, I read those for the first time when I was about 14, I think, something like that, and just yeah. shattered me. Just, yeah. <laughs> it was awful. Uh, like, in a good way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I love I love Philip Pullman so much. I like if anyone who dates me, I'm like, you need to read these three books. <laughs> Just, yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 amazing how certain authors conjure a feeling. Yeah. It's really it's really interesting to me that it was Neil Gaiman, Spiderwick, and um, Philip Pullman because the your show feels like it belongs in that section of the yeah. the bookshop.
2: I feel like if I could ever create a show that sort of conjured up the feeling that sort of writers like that create in their readers, if you could do that to an audience, I think that would be the most amazing thing. I think at the moment I'm still working and it's going to take me a few years to get to that level of sort of show, mm-hmm. but I would just like an audience to be completely transported. So I'd like Yeah. I want to keep sort of like writing new stuff and creating to the point that I can have a show where magic is just happening all the time not in the form of oh here is a trick that I'm about to perform stuff is just happening mm-hmm. so that's what I think I'm still working towards so they're just kind of transported into a bit of a fantasy sort of realm to it that's so. such
1: a lovely goal like,
2: <laughs> I just think people need that because we don't it's just so doom and gloom the world at the moment. And I think people just need a bit of escapism. But I don't think people realise they need it. Right. So if they accidentally walked into my show thinking they were going to see a magic show and then they actually got sort of accidentally transported into a story, that would be an amazing thing to happen. Because they'd come out with a different perspective, I think. If you could create a show that powerful. I don't think I'm anywhere near that yet. But I think I'm on the right path to it.
0: I
1: can't think of a, I can't think of a better way to, to end. That was oh, absolutely yeah. beautiful. Uh, thank you so much no, for again. being on on the podcast. No, I, no, thanks for so having delightful. me. Delightful to chat with you. Please come back anytime. Yeah. And uh, yeah, stay in touch. This was yeah, lovely. That was my chat with Ava Bo, and she's just fantastic. I highly recommend you go follow her on Instagram. It's at ava.bo.magic. That's B-E-A-U-X, because she's fancy. Here's a thought. I love going running. No, really, I do. I love going for a run. But because of the generally solitary nature of the activity, I don't get to talk about it much, so I hope you will indulge me. As much as I don't like talking about current events, I'm still kind of amazed about Kipchoge breaking the two-hour mark on the marathon. I'm not going to touch the qualifications about why it doesn't count as a world record. I just think it's hecka cool. Anyone dedicating time and effort toward training for something is incredible, and I think I just need a news win, you know? But why do I run if I'm not training? I guess that is the sort of thing many of us wonder, right? Why try to get good at something we know we will never be superlative at? I often think about the time I spend working on the accordion, say, or magic tricks, all the while knowing that there is probably some three-year-old Japanese kid on YouTube who is better than I will ever be, or some 80-year-old Ukrainian on Snapchat, or whatever. Why bother starting at all? I suppose you could make the argument that it's about the journey, but... is it? I'm getting off topic. I like to stretch my legs and move, which is funny, I guess, since many of my other preferred activities, magic, reading, watching films, involve sitting very still for long periods of time. Perhaps that has something to do with it. Running allows me to channel my copious amounts of energy into a focused outpouring of motion. My father, also a running aficionado, loves to remark, I just feel good after a run. And there is some truth to that. I always feel really good after a run, but then again, I also feel really good after someone is done hitting me with a stick. So it can't just be about the after. Since getting back to school, I've commuted to class at least three days a week on foot. The 8 mile round trip is a difficult one as the school sits on top of a hill with the last 1500 feet or so gaining 300 feet in elevation. So at the end of my run to school when I'm tired, I've got to attack a big hill for the finish. Needless to say, I'm never cold when I get to class. The trip home presents its own problem as I've got to start with a long downhill stretch. Anyone who runs will tell you that the most difficult terrain to avoid injury on is downhill. Not only are you watching where you step, you've got to make sure you don't give in to the temptation to let her rip and go bounding down the hill. It might feel great, but you'll be walking downstairs backwards for the next two weeks. And believe me, I'm speaking from personal experience. Perhaps that's part of the charm though. Learning to apply some mental agility to a strictly physical activity finding the place where the mind and body can work together to produce motion. I admit, when I have a good run, when I'm in my body and in my head, and I can just exist on my feet, there is nothing quite like it. Some scientists argue that human beings were designed to be long-distance lopers, and from personal experience I can attest to that. As the boss says, baby, we were born to run. Plus, it gives me plenty of time to listen to audiobooks and podcasts, My commute run to school and back is about 40 minutes each way, for a total of an hour and 20 minutes a day. Not too bad. Look out, doorstop fantasy novels. Like the House of Pain, I'm running up on ya. Speaking of phone books of Fantasia, let us not forget the Lord of the Rings connection. When you read about them traveling for days on end, you can't help but imagine them moving at a mid-paced jog. Peter Jackson certainly did, especially during Gimli, Legolas, and Aragorn's desperate pursuit of the orcs who have captured their hobbit friends. I guess what I'm getting at in this ramble is that there are many reasons I enjoy running. If you like it, I'm sure you can think of a few of your own. Lest anyone accuse me of telling others to do exactly what I'm doing, let me assure you, that is not my intention. As Emily Carding said on this very program a few weeks back, go and find your thing, whatever excites you. So yeah, maybe you're not a runner, maybe you like chess, or whatever TikTok the app is. If that's your thing, go do it. Not because you have any specific goal in mind, but maybe because it feels cool to do. Or maybe because it keeps you from going out of your mind. Or just maybe because it's part of an elaborate mental-physical cosplay in which you imagine yourself to be some kind of ranger crossing the wilds of Middle-earth. I need more coffee. Pokey Fright, have you heard about the most perfect casting in history? Much has been made of the perfection that was casting Robert Downey Jr. as the lead in Iron Man over a decade ago. Not only did he bring a charm and charisma to the role, he also brought all the baggage that came from being, well, Robert Downey Jr., a recovering alcoholic and drug abuser who was sponsored in AA by none other than Mel Gibson. Yeah, I'm not going to try to unpack that. RDJ was a person who had lived a life of excess and abandon, riding on a tremendous amount of natural talent, who'd woken up one morning, literally in his neighbor's house in someone else's bed, and realized the party was over and it was time to get serious or get dead. Just like a certain tech genius billionaire philanthropist we now love so very, very much. But I would argue that there are even more perfect castings out there. I'm sure many folks have heard this little anecdote from the set of the first Harry Potter film, but it bears repeating, if for no other reason than how much they knocked every single bit of casting out of the park. Like, seriously, just look at the character arc and physical transformation arc of the Neville Longbottom character, as played by Matthew Lewis, and tell me the casting director Susan Figgis is not a weird sister possessed of occult knowledge of future times. Uh, oh yes, the anecdote. Christopher Columbus, the director of the film, the first Harry Potter film, that is, assigned each of the leads to write an essay of a couple of pages on their character and their ideas about the role. Emma Watson, in very Hermione Granger fashion, turned in 10 pages. Daniel Radcliffe turned in about three on Harry Potter. And Rupert Grint, well, let's just say it's a very Ron Weasley move to just never turn the paper in. Nailed it. Kevin Spacey in L.A. Confidential is another one. I know, Spacey being cast as a creepy sack of hot dogs and anything was kind of perfect, but this is more specific. Jack Vincennes, Spacey's character in L.A. Confidential, is coded as a closeted gay man filled with self-loathing and desperately hiding his true nature. James Elroy, the film writer, said Spacey portrayed some of the best self-loathing I've ever seen on screen. You get the point. I don't want to talk about Spacey anymore. But, hey, at least it makes the next dude an improvement. Sean Connery as Alan Quatermain. Think about this casting in The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen for just a second. So, Alan Quatermain is this adventurer British uh, subject who has had all these adventures over the years in Africa and etc., He's the lead character in the Alan Quartermain novels, most notably King Solomon's Minds. That's probably the most famous one. And when uh, Alan Moore wrote him into the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen series, he's kind of this washed up, passed over figure that the Empire doesn't really care about very much. They've sort of rewritten the character for the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen film in that Quartermain is someone who has been abandoned by the Empire and just wants to be left alone and. His glory days are behind him, and no one really cares about him much anymore. He's kind of ignored. Sean Connery plays that, because Sean Connery used to be Bond. It's, it's just brilliant. Anyway, all of this is preamble to what I'm going to argue is the greatest casting of all time. You're all familiar with the jokes about, quote, pictured insert actor name here, not acting, end quote. The popular meme centers around the times in a film one actor is clearly just channeling their loathing toward another, or using their anger or rage at a director, or the fact that it's just cold as a witch's tip jar on the soundstage and they're supposed to be freezing. But I think in this particular instance, not only is the actor not acting, I think you could argue that In doing so, they elevate the proceedings, not only for themselves, but for all around them. My nomination for the best casting of all time? Ricky Jay in Deadwood. I am fully aware that I'm stacking him up against Ian seen the III McShane and Powers the Voice of the Mountains booth, but come on! I don't think either has ever run a brothel with an iron hand in a real way, but... Jay... Spend any amount of time watching Ricky Jay in almost anything, be it a documentary about magic, an exhibition of card handling, or even his various performances in sundry films, and it becomes clear that he is something special. Ricky Jay is a man who knows things. If anyone in a given room has a secret, it's Ricky. Many magicians exude an atmosphere that is exclusionary to the point of being rude, but that's not what's going on here. Instead, there is an invitation to confidence, the perfect aura for the conniving huckster. In magical performance, there is a fine line between making the audience feel as though they are part of the moment while also not giving away the game. So too with the con artist. Beyond the vibe of his performance as Eddie Sawyer in Deadwood, there is a technical aspect of his performance. Jay is a consummate professional in the worlds of ledger domain both the legal and less legitimate branches. For an example of the inverse, one need to look no further than Deadwood's own Timothy Oliphant. I am convinced he has never held a hammer in his life. That's not a jab at an actor. I have no reason to believe anything other than a lovely person, just a simple statement of fact. Much could be made of the phenomenon of actors who do not have any experience with the supposed profession of their character. You only need to glance at the hideous violin miming of Meryl Streep in Music of the Heart or Russell Crowe in Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, to be dazzled by the abject horror that is poorly executed fakery. When Jay holds a pack of cards, shuffles it, or moves them around, he is so genuinely skilled with the materials that it is hard to believe films do not cast experts as a rule. Beyond his handling of the various materials of his chosen craft, Jay has the look of one who would spend time perfecting such slights and taking the pains to learn such secrets. Again, I can make the point much more ably by pointing to Marvel Comics superbods Hugh Jackman or Chris Hemsworth playing supposed computer hackers. I'm not saying computer hackers can't have nice, muscular, tanned, washboarded, glistening, lust-inducing... What was I talking about? Oh yeah, sorry. I'm not saying computer hackers can't be good looking or whatever. I'm just saying it's strange credulity that they have time to be, quote, the world's greatest hacker, unquote, and also eat nothing but six almonds and a chicken breast and work out five to seven hours a day. Incidentally, Jay actually played a hacker in Tomorrow Never Dies opposite Pierce Brosnan as Bond, a role to which I find him ill-suited, even more so by the fact that the character was written for a young man of South Asian descent, hence the surname Gupta. There is an apocryphal story about the making of Tomorrow Never Dies That A fight scene was planned between Jay and Pierce Brosnan's bond, wherein the magician would demonstrate his remarkable ability to hurl playing cards long distances at high speed and with startling accuracy. During blocking, Jay was instructed to throw a card at Pierce Brosnan's face, the latter being some 50 feet away, as a sort of attack on the LeBidenist secret agent. Jay was reluctant to do so, citing a danger to his fellow performer, which was ignored through multiple promptings by both the director and Brosnan himself. After much cajoling, Jay is supposed to have whipped a card at the handsome face of Bond and caused a great deal of distress due to the painful nature of being hit by an object traveling at such great speed. At the time, Jay held the world record for throwing playing cards faster, higher, and farther than anyone alive. Needless to say, no such fight scene appeared in the finished film. I digress, but the story is just too good not to share. I could go on at length about Jay's varied interests in all things related to the sundry diversions of bygone eras. One only need listen to any episode of Jay's journal to see the man read widely and with omnivorous tastes. He looks comfortable and correct in the outfits of Eddie Sawyer, which are not far off from his usual performing getup. Jay often appeared in a waistcoat. Even his beard and hair required a good deal less attention than that of, say, Keith Carradine as Wild Bill Hickok. Jay's contributions to the show even extended to the writing. Though individual episodes of television series often credit single writers, the process is usually collaborative. The fact that Jay received a writing credit for the 11th episode of the first season indicates his involvement in that process. I can't help but speculate that he contributed to the high level of verisimilitude in the series depiction of brothels and gambling dens in the 19th century. If there is one note of sadness to this celebration of a singular moment of perfection in casting, it is the rumors of Ricky Jay's falling out with Deadwood's creator and showrunner David Milch. This conflict led to his character disappearing between seasons 1 and 2 with only a few terse mentions of an off-screen exit. Do yourself a favor. Go and watch the first season of Deadwood and just revel in the performance we get from Jay. His delivery of the line, Speaking only for myself, I still mark the anniversary is right up there in my personal acting pantheon with James Earl Jones's I am your father, Ron Perlman's gonna be sore in the morning, or anything Patrick Warburton says, ever. Hey, I, uh, hey, hey, don't, uh, hey. I can't do a Patrick Warburton impersonation. I don't know why I'm trying to do that. Look, I'm not saying it's the best thing ever, but at least now you've heard about it. Song of the Week. This is uh, an old folk tune that I learned years ago when I was first learning to play the accordion. This is one of the first songs I learned. I love playing this song, I've played it all over the world, and it just makes me happy. So I hope you folks enjoy my rendition of I'll Tell Me Ma.
0: the boys alone. They pulled my hair and they stole my comb. But that's all right till I go home. She's a handsome, she's pretty. She's the belle of Bellingham City. She's a court in one, two, three. Please will you tell me who is she? Mooney says he loves her, all the boys are fighting for her. They're up at the door, they're ringing the bell, singing, oh, my true love, are you well? Out she comes, as white as snow, rings on her fingers, bells on her toes. Well, Johnny Murray says she'll die if she doesn't get the fellow with the rolling and I. Well, tell me, ma, when I come home, the girls won't leave, the boys alone. They pulled my hair and they stole my comb. She's a handsome, she's pretty, she's the belle of Ellingham City, and she's a court in one, two, three. Please will you tell me who is she? Ha <laughs>
1: bag this isn't technically a thing sent for the podcast but i just got to my studio to record this week's episode and i found that i'd received a package from my dear friend tim mannix who appeared on the show a couple of weeks ago and i it it is so heavy so uh i bought a magic trick from tim um when i was down in fresno and it is a uh, a tin of Altoids that you open it and it explodes because there's there's a fire it, it's on fire um, and uh, I <laughs> I I forgot it and so I asked Tim if he would mail it to me and he said that he would and there, we kind of had this joke about that uh, he he had stolen it from me and Tim sent me this giant bag of magic tricks uh this is crazy Uh, there's 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 a whole book on on how to use a thumb tip and there's a there's a miniature uh ouija board uh oh man there there are a couple of things that tim sent me though that i have doubles of so if you're interested in getting a little magic trick surprise in the mail uh shoot me a a postcard or a letter or something and i will pass one of these on to you because this is just great okay here's what i want you to do I want you right now to think of any playing card, any playing card at all. Quick. Queen of hearts. If it wasn't the queen of hearts, I'm sorry, but I'm sure somebody listening out there just had their mind freaking blown. Thank you so much Tim for sending me these and uh Oh, there's a little note in here. It says, "Strangely, as promised, enclosed is your stolen Hot Mint's box along with several other tricks for t- treats." <laughs> What a pleasure it was to have the opportunity to perform with you. Oh, Tim. It was too short, but I'm so glad we did. Best wishes as you return to school after such a long and fruitful hiatus. Your other brother from another mother. (laughs) Tim. Oh, delightful. If you haven't listened to the Tim Mannix episode, please go back and check it out. Tim's great. And... That's it for the mailbag. If you've got something you wanna send me, either just some weird bit of old, I don't know, taxidermy, or like uh, a human finger bone you found under the bed, or you know, your wisdom teeth, whatever, and y- you could send that stuff to Strangely, 1000 Harris Avenue, number 21, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. I look forward to hearing from you. So that does it for this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. I had such a good time talking to Ava Bow. I hope you folks enjoyed our chat. She is the kind of chat I want to feature on this show as much as possible. People that you wouldn't get to meet either because they live far away or because they're they do different things than you. And people who are inspiring. She inspires me so much to work on my craft and to put myself out there in ways that I hadn't before. So go give her a follow. And thank you so much for listening to Strangely and Friends, the podcast. If you'd like to help this show exist, I would appreciate it if you signed up for the Patreon. It's patreon.com slash strangely. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash strangely. And... I'm going to start trying to put up some more exclusive stuff up there. I'm thinking I might do cover songs by request. I can't put cover songs on the actual podcast, but I could put them up on the Patreon. So if that's something you folks would be interested in, let me know. And thank you so much for listening. Even if you're not a Patreon supporter, the fact that you are out there in radio land letting me go into your ears, that sounds a little bit cheeky Um, that you're out there listening means a lot because this is the one big creative outlet I have while I'm in school and I just love to make stuff and I hope the stuff I make makes you happy so until next time have a great day have you got a joke oh no you um, should let me
2: know Um, if I need to say it twice yeah I can do it. But yeah, I've um I don't know about you, but I've had a really good time mm-hmm. doing a podcast with you. Um, oh thank you. That's okay. I don't think I've had this much fun since so the uh with the lecture coming cool. top. The stakes were high, literally and figuratively. It's so bad, but so like oh. well, I challenge anyone else to get a joke that mean in their show.
1: Strangely and Friends, the podcast is a Herringbone Society production.